And a lot of people take this perspective of like, look, I'm responsible for this small sphere of things and fixing, you know, systemic racism is not one of them. What's been effective in trying to counteract that argument is data, but also talking about culture. You know, we've all heard culture eats strategy for breakfast. You know, when you show folks data about how much culture problems impact productivity and how much more productive you are when you move in a better direction from a culture perspective, I think that is a, a very effective argument. From C Street, a strategic advisory firm helping CEOs and C-suites achieve maximum value, this is Word on the C Street a show where influential leaders reflect on the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and share their perspectives on the defining challenges and opportunities of our time. Hi, I'm John Hennis, founder and CEO of C Street Advisory Group. Welcome to Word on the C Street. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with David Clooney, Executive Director of the Black Economic Alliance. You'll hear David discuss how better economic policy can help black communities build wealth, the hidden challenges that black entrepreneurs face, and why data is the key to unlocking diversity in corporate America. David, I want to start off uh, talking about the Black Economic Alliance's mission to promote economic progress and prosperity in the black community and with a specific focus on work, wages, and wealth. You know, we also are looking at the Biden administration with Build Back Better. I want to know with that plan taking shape and what you're doing, how can these plans lift up Black communities? Yeah, I think we have an awesome opportunity in front of us to really look at creating a new economic infrastructure that just in a whole new way includes and goes at directly providing access to Black Americans and, and all of disinvested communities. I think in the last year and a half, we've talked more than we ever have in history about how systemic racism uh, has embedded unfairness in every American institution, educational, criminal justice, financial, everything. What the Build Back Better plan and, and the opportunity in front of us presents is really a time that we can look at and, and be honest about you know, what has created that unfairness and start to go at it directly and dismantle it and build new systems that are intentionally trying to counteract that unfairness and that systemic inequity. So a couple of things we think about, particularly focused on work, wages, and wealth, are you know, how wealth was created for others out, outside of the Black community, particularly you know, white Americans. A lot of that was through home ownership and small business ownership. And you, know, you think about how a lot of that wealth was created through both the New Deal after the Great Depression and the GI Bill, the fastest avenue to uh, the middle class for white Americans, and just you know, what how much of that Black folks were left out of. For example, 1934 uh, National Housing Act created a system of government-backed affordable mortgages that for generations helped create home ownership that then created wealth that was passed on by generations. 98% of those loans for over 30 years went to white borrowers. Black folks were essentially excluded from that program. So if we take the opportunity to build back better to kind of begin to acknowledge and address the factors that have enabled and hindered wealth building, you know, some of the ways that we can rebuild that wealth are through things like access to good paying jobs in the both bipartisan infrastructure package and build back better plan. We're talking a lot more about equitable transportation, you know, trying to address 
neighborhoods that have been left out and create bridges quite quite literally, uh, but also figuratively to bring people in to have access to you know different types of jobs, job programs that are tied to both of the bills that are targeting Black communities and communities of color, increased uh, disadvantaged business contracting, uh, and, and really updating the way that the government does business with communities of color, not just raising the bar, but also kind of changing the criteria uh, to be more inclusive and even to target more high growth uh, segments of the economy, giving more money to state and local governments, which are huge employers uh, of Black Americans, but also the human infrastructure. That, that's such a big part of creating a system that allows people to get to work. So things like childcare, through paid family leave, which has been kind of getting cut down and more and more, unfortunately, child tax credit, access to low cost and free education. You talk about the GI Bill creating that similar type of access to education as a pathway to building wealth, money for HBCUs and minority serving institutions, and you know even closing medical coverage gaps. So those are just a few of the ideas about the opportunities that we have in the Build Back Better plan to essentially create a new economic infrastructure that is intentionally inclusive instead of inherently or intentionally or unintentionally exclusive. Intentionality, right, is so key. To the extent we are intentional about taking marginalized communities, about taking black and brown communities and providing opportunities for economic growth, it's not a zero-sum game. It is a way to bring people together, create a value for our nation, and then to have everybody be able to rise up. Absolutely agree. And that's, you know, goes to the core of what BEA is about, is trying to demonstrate the value writ large to the U.S. economy of fixing this structural damage in the Black economy. And there's been a lot of good data put out in the last year and a half, two years, that really illustrates this point well. A few years ago, McKinsey put out a report showing if you were to close the Black-white wealth gap, you can increase U.S. GDP by 4 to 6%. City put out a report last year showing we've lost out on $16 trillion of output in GDP as a result of racial inequality, particularly with respect to Black Americans. And then Brookings just put out a report that the uh, president of the San Francisco Fed cited to show that we've lost $51 trillion of U.S. GDP output since 1990 as a result of racial inequality. This is not charity for the Black community. This is a necessary component of any effective, sustainable growth strategy for the U.S. economies to fix these problems. What kind of opportunity do we have for corporate America to be part of the solution? So I think it's a lot about acknowledging how every corporation is a microcosm of the community or communities that it serves. We start having conversations about if and you know whether systemic racism shows up in corporations. It absolutely does. It, it is something that we all carry with us, bring to you know our office, our different work experiences with us. So I think it's something that corporations are starting to take an internal look at how it has affected how they do business, uh, both internally with respect to their hiring, the culture, promotions, um, the representation in their senior leadership, what barriers are in the way, how can they remove those barriers, create pathways, but then also externally and how they're doing business with communities of color, particularly the Black community. But I think in general, taking a much more deliberate look at what impact um, systemic racism has had on how they do business and how just like it's holding back the U.S. economy from you know, productivity, how it is holding back that company from what could be significantly you know, higher productivity. And, and we've seen the numbers around how much more productive and higher performing companies are when they have more representation around their board of directors in their C-suite and, and just among their employee core. So I think 
companies are understanding the business case, but also the moral imperative because, you know, the, the country is becoming more and more diverse and their stakeholders, their employees, their stockholders, their investors, but, you know, particularly uh, the, the people who work at their company are, you know, look different and come from different backgrounds and they have to get these things right if they're going to have a chance to succeed in the future. Looking at Gen Z right now and getting them involved because I, I see them as a power. They are not afraid to speak up. They're not afraid to call people out. They're not afraid to go public with it. How does BEA look at the Gen Z uh, generation? Exactly as you put it, as a huge opportunity. You know, this is a whole new class of people that are thinking differently, speaking differently, have a completely different set of expectations about how they interact with the companies that they work with and work for. Um, and I think we've seen them drive a huge change in the way that we dress, the way that we talk, the way that we, quote unquote, bring our whole selves to work, you know, in the business community. And, and they are a huge asset in terms of, one, getting input about how we should be thinking differently about breaking systems. I loved hearing from younger people who have just asked the question, well, why do we do things this way? Or this is wrong or challenging the status quo, which so many of us grew up, you know, color inside the lines and don't make waves and, you know, keep your head down, do, do a good job and, and you'll have your opportunity but don't ruffle any feathers or, or upset the apple cart. And they have a completely different you know, perspective, which is to come in and disrupt and, and blow things up. Now, it is better when that's done with some sense of you know, productivity and you know, having an end game in mind, and you have to channel that properly. But I do think uh, Gen Z is, is a huge opportunity and it's something that BEA, we are thinking a lot more about as we hire younger folks, as we engage you know, partners on the outside, we're, we're increasingly targeting a diverse set of perspectives. And, and part of that is generational and, and having folks, you know, who are more senior and seasoned in their career and folks who are, you know, younger and um, and fresher in their career and, and can bring different perspectives and have us, you know, challenge the way that we do things and, and challenge the, the status quo. So I think Gen Z is a huge value add uh, and asset and we, you know, continue to look for more ways to engage with them um, productively. What you just said, I think um, in two ways is so important. Gen Z, you know, or disruptors, that that can be negative in a lot of ways. But you also, you talked about embracing Gen Zers, learning from Gen Zers, having them ask the questions that might get us to a better place. The truth is, older guys like us, we do have a lot of experience. We've learned a lot over the years. And so there are things that we do actually know. But having that energy and that new focus, and I think really the enlightenment. And so Speaking of that, I want to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship. Black community has really been left out of the ability to raise capital and really start businesses and, and get that support. BEA um, recently had that $50 million entrepreneurship fund um, and the new Center for Black Entrepreneurship in partnership with Spellman and Morehouse. So I'm wondering, what are the biggest barriers that, that Black entrepreneurs face? I mean, how's this program helping to, to really lift them up and give them the, the opportunities they should have? And what you often hear cited as the number one reason that Black entrepreneurs have a hard time moving forward is access to capital. Digging a, a level deeper than that, it's, it's about more than access to capital. I think it is uh, about unconscious bias and you know, exposure to opportunity and, and the perceived cost of doing business, if you will, with Black businesses versus you know, our counterparts. And um, you know, if you look at before 2020, less than 1% of venture capital finance, which we know the industry has been just growing at a you know, rapid pace, less than 1% of the money that was out in the market being invested in founders uh, and new businesses went to black founders. 
in 2020 with the influx of investment into the black community, particularly black you know, businesses, still only about 3% of venture capital finance went to black founders. Then a lot of what we're trying to do with our BEA Entrepreneurs Fund, a sign of the times, you know, an anchor investment of $20 million from Wells Fargo to kick this off the ground. They acknowledge you know, the scope of the problem. This is really just scratching the surface, but that there needs to be a, a new set of opportunity and exposure for you know, Black entrepreneurs to get access to capital to a lot of the friends and family money that they both don't have because of you know most of us do not come from generational wealth. We've talked about some of the backdrop of that already, but also um, the unconscious bias that, that stops Black businesses getting traditional financing from a bank, from the venture capital community, from the private equity community, elsewhere in the alternative investment community. So one of the things we've set out to do with BEA Entrepreneurs Fund is to essentially demonstrate to the rest of the market the commercial value of investing in Black entrepreneurs to, to make it something that is sought after as you know, an emerging opportunity, an emerging market. And we've had folks like Rich Lou Dennis uh, on our board at the Black Economic Alliance, who's done this extremely successfully um, through the New Voices Fund, Essence Ventures, and has created, you know, a new class of Black millionaires who essentially then can reinvest that money into other Black businesses, back into the Black community, uh, essentially mentor and bring up other Black entrepreneurs. And that, again, only benefits the entire economy. And then through the Center for Black Entrepreneurship at Spelman and Morehouse, same concept. It is really about creating a new level of exposure, opportunity, and investment in Black entrepreneurs by tapping into the HBCU community, You know, starting at Felman & Morehouse, starting at the Atlanta University Center. But HBCUs are just a hotbed and, and target-rich environment for Black talent. And they have been engines of social and economic mobility for years, where many students who are going to school at HBCUs, I am a graduate of Howard University School of Law, You know what these organizations have produced over a hundred years is uh, just nothing short of amazing. So, uh, you know, that is a huge way we can scale, you know, this type of exposure and hopefully demonstrate the value to others to investing in black entrepreneurs. You were, as you just mentioned, a Howard Law grad. Then you went to Paul Weiss, one of the top law firms in the country. You decided to go to Iowa to campaign for, at the time, Senator Barack Obama. Uh, and then you left Paul Weiss to go join the Obama administration. So what what drove you to to make these decisions? Well, I wish I could say I had a grand scheme and that this was all part of a plan, and I knew you know every step when I was going to take it. It was really an evolution, and you know a lot of it for me was building on each experience and figuring out what I was most interested in, but also you know where I I felt I wanted to have impact, and, and a lot of that was born out of going to Howard University School of Law, which is you know, a place that embeds in you a sense of responsibility to pay forward you know, the, the education that you've gotten and the opportunities you've had. Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the dean of the law school uh, when Thurgood Marshall was there and Thurgood Marshall's uh, mentor, one of the earliest Black students at Harvard Law School, and I think the first Black uh, editor on, on the Harvard Law Review, he had a saying that a lawyer, once they learn the Constitution and understand you know, how to use the knowledge of being a lawyer, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And that stuck with me in law school. And, and whatever I was going to go do afterward, I had this you know, sense of responsibility to civil rights, social justice, speaking up for you know, the voiceless and, and communities that are underserved, disinvested, so on. Um, so when I got to Paul Weiss, great place to cut your teeth phenomenal training. I had some of the best mentors I could ever ask for in now former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, Ted Wells, Dave Brown, uh, Patrick Campbell, uh, Hakeem Jeffries was uh, was an attorney there when I you know, was first interviewing and got there. So I was really, really lucky to have 
examples of, you know, great talent, particularly black talent, but great talent all around me. But learned pretty quickly, you know, early on that that was not going to be my my long, long term. And I started to do a lot of pro bono work that I was just really, really interested in. Um, and I realized after being there for a while, I left the clerk for a federal judge for a year, went out to work on the 08 campaign in, uh, in Iowa, and then came back to, to Paul Weiss. And in my last year there, I think I billed 1,300 pro bono hours. Definitely thought I was going to get fired for that, but it, it was just a labor of love. And it was, you know, I, I, when I was looking to leave Paul Weiss, I also started to think about how I was spending my time because you spend so much time at a law firm working. You think like, who, you know, who's benefiting from this other than my bank account, you know, uh, and, and sure, you have some clients that you're more interested in, some matters you're more interested in than others. But the pro bono work I did around voting rights and, you know, prisoners' rights and, uh, disability rights and and educational opportunity, all these different things. That's where I was really, really engaged. And so when I was looking to leave Paul Weiss, it was between going to the White House, which ended up working out, or going to the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, or I was, you know, trying to angle my way into the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which I had done like five or six pro bono cases with at that point. And, and you know, some folks there thought I was an honorary LDF member, but definitely was still working at a firm at the time, uh, which I guess was kind of the best of both worlds. In any event, um, it was a path that was kind of informed by my experience and then going to the administration and working on the campaign, going to the administration, a lot of that was about just being a part of something that was way bigger than, than me uh, and, and being really driven by this particular candidate who started this movement. And I, I was never a political person. I was never a person who went to law school in order to go work at the White House or in order to go work in politics. Working at Paul Weiss got me exposed to Barack Obama when he was running, when I was a summer in, in the summer of 2004, a summer associate, and Jay Johnson was going to, you know, events uh, where uh, Harold Ford was speaking and Barack Obama was there and got to meet him and just, you know, and, and he was running for Senate at the time. So it was exposure, which is part of what we're trying to do at BEA with, you know, more, you know, Black folks to different opportunities, uh, just opened up a whole new world of opportunities for me and, and going into the White House and then eventually the Treasury Department, a lot of it was about economic policy and, and my personal interest in how much of an impact economic policy has on so many other parts of how we live. So uh, that was kind of my chosen policy area after being a generalist my whole career, a general you know, litigation lawyer, going to the White House and then kind of a generalist role in counsel's office and primarily vetting potential nominees. I wanted to pick a place and a you know body of work that I felt like I could really dig into. So that's why I went to Treasury, had a phenomenal experience there. That's why I went to J.P. Morgan Chase. And that's why I'm at the Black Economic Alliance now, because this has all been a bit of an evolution. And I feel like so much of this work that I'm doing now at BEA was, was an extracurricular activity, a pro bono or something I did on nights and weekends or, you know, would sign up to you know be head of, you know, whatever. You know, I'm very fortunate to have kind of evolved this body of work and now being a be in a role that where it is all relevant, uh, but I, I really love what I do every day and, and absolutely see the value, you know, and the impact that we're having through BEA's work. I want to go back to one thing that you were talking about, uh, not being involved in politics and then finding a candidate who kind of changed your world. And because I had that with, you know, with Kamala Harris, you know, I was never really involved in, in politics and then got to meet her uh, and got to start working with her and her campaign and seeing who she was, seeing the type of leader, seeing the obstacles in her way and her never backing down from any of them, you know, seeing the racism and the sexism that's out there, but not stopping, always getting down on it, on one knee to talk, you know, eye to eye with young girls and telling them that never asked for permission to lead. It pulled me in and, you know, kind of very similar to you, like changed my whole trajectory you know, now you're doing something that you'd be doing it, whether it's your job or not, it's what you want to focus on. 
you were in the business world, the political world, BEA now. What do you find when you're talking to corporate America? What, what stops leaders in corporate America from literally saying, I am going to focus on making diversity, equity, and inclusion systemic because I know it's good for my business. So I'm actually going to take the lead on it. Yeah, I, I think something that we've encountered is the scope of the problem is a challenge. And a lot of people take this perspective of like, look, I'm responsible for this small sphere of things and fixing, you know, systemic racism is not one of them. And so let me focus on what I'm focused on and I'll you know, control what's in my purview, but look away from my day job to try to fix systemic racism within this company, within, you know, whatever, you know, region I live in. Um, and, and I think what's been effective in trying to counteract that argument is data, but also talking about culture. You know, we've all heard the term culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, you know, when you show folks data about how much culture problems impact productivity and, and how much more productive you are when you move in a better direction from a culture perspective and show examples of companies that have done that to their benefit, I think that is a, a very effective argument. And just talking about the bottom line of how this impacts companies and, and how this is a business imperative to get right going forward and, and be able to put numbers behind that about you know examples of what to do and what not to do and what companies have gotten it right and, and gotten it wrong. I think that helps drive home the point. And you know, there again, there's you know all kind of data on this. There's a book um, by Scott Page called The Difference that talks about how diversity drives better results. So I think a lot of it is about grounding this information in data and also, you know, quantifying the problem. You know, you have companies that are just now starting to hire people, put people in place internal and external to essentially measure the problem. And when they see the scope of the problem, they, you know, kind of step back and there, there, there are two reactions. One is, oh my God, we have to do something. The other is like, don't let anybody see these numbers because these are terrible. But but these are shared across industries. And, and this is a, you know, entire American industry problem. This is not a, you know, one sector, one company problem. So the more we can share this data, you know, hold each other accountable publicly and, and really acknowledge the scope of the problem, I think we'll be in a better place to address it instead of folks trying to you know, kind of sweep under the rug or feel, you know, exposed because they have a problem that just about every other company does. All right. So we're coming to the end. So at the end of every uh, podcast episode, um, we ask three quick questions. So tell me about something that's been on your mind lately. This can be a book, a movie, an idea, a quote, anything you're hooked on. Maybe I'll give you two. I'll cheat a little bit. One is a book. One of BEA's advisory board members, Heather McGee, um, wrote a book called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It was eye-opening. I mean, I, I have had the lived experience of a 41-year-old Black man, and, and I've had you know plenty of experiences that I thought I had kind of heard and seen it all. Um, it was just really eye-opening about what in experiences inform our perspectives on race um, and how how detrimental it is to our own, you know, well-being in so many different ways. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it. Folks should check it out. The other thing is uh, the show on HBO Succession. Big fan. Very happy it's back on. Uh, there's a lot of good TV on right now. All right. So now give, give me a hot take. What's something you believe that a lot of people would disagree with? Yeah, maybe I'll go back to TV on this one. You know, there, there's the conversation about the best shows on TV ever, The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad. Just didn't do it for me. I uh, everybody loves Breaking Bad. I, I watched the whole season of it. Didn't catch on to it. People t- tell me I have to go back and watch like another season. I don't want to watch two seasons of a show to 
get interested in it, that's too much. So uh, Breaking Bad didn't do it for me, but I, I seem to be going against the grain with that one. People love it. You're definitely going against the grain with my wife. She loved it. I never saw the whole thing either. So we're on the, we're, we're, we're together on that. Uh, all right. And last, who is somebody you'd love to hear as a guest on The Word on the C Street? So someone who I think would be really relevant for the work you all do, you know, and, and this discussion is a woman named Valerie Rainford, who is the architect of the Advancing Black Leaders Program at J.P. Morgan Chase. She's now gone out and started her own consulting firm named Ellery Strategies. Um, she's a mentor of mine, a good friend, but she was masterful in standing up this program at J.P. Morgan Chase that was transformational, more than doubled the number of managing directors in the you know four and a half years that I was there. I think they did it in three years, increased the number of executive directors, one level below managing directors by something like 70%, just completely blew up and changed um, you know, what had been in this really intractable problem before where, you know, folks like Jamie Dimon and others were trying to put resources behind it and figure out what the problem was. And one of the things they had to do was disaggregate data, realize that they had a significantly acute problem with the Black community. And she came in and just, you know, really was revolutionary. And I, I think she's someone who would be really interesting to hear on this podcast and would love to see you guys working together. David, thank you so much for joining Word on the C Street. Thank you. And thank you for the work you all are doing. I'm so happy to see you all come together. You have great folks there and uh, look forward to working together more. Thanks for listening to Word on the C Street. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and share with friends. You can reach us at info at and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the C Street underscore NYC.